when I recognize that God loves me, as the Bible says in the New Testament, we love him because he first loved us. When we let him love us, then we can begin to love ourselves. And when we begin to love ourselves, then that opens up a new way of relating to others. And so it's let God love you, begin to love yourself, and out of that fullness and that wholeness, we can begin to love others. So it's no longer performance-based. It's no longer trying to be good. It is being free to love. You're listening to Restoring the Soul with Michael John Cusick. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 7. I'm Michael John Cusick. In this episode, I continue the conversation with Saint and Sage Dr. David Donaldson, 85-year-old clinical psychologist who continues to practice psychotherapy after more than 60 years. In this part of our conversation, David shares the wisdom gained from living eight and a half decades, specifically what he's learned about grace, the journey to wholeness, and what he's thinking about heaven. So let's turn now to part two of my conversation with Dr. David Donaldson. It's remarkable to me that with everything that you'd been through and with seeking out as many therapists as you did to really address the issues, that you never lost hope that you could be whole spiritually and emotionally. What was behind that? When I was a kid, I really steeped myself in the Bible. I was getting ready to be a minister. Even in high school, I had a girlfriend for about four years and much of our time together was literally spent in Bible study. She lived about 50 miles away, so we would get together uh, about once a month, and we would correspond a lot with each other. And um, we were very focused on what the Scriptures taught, and we tried to live it out. One of the things that became a part of... uh, my DNA was this conviction that life is redeemable and problems are solvable. And that hope, that promise, became kind of like an implicit covenant between me and God. That he would bring you to that point of wholeness. Yes. There was always a hollow feeling in my chest, an empty feeling. And that's what kept me pursuing and growing and seeking and it wasn't until I was literally about 70 before everything came together in such a way that I no longer felt that emptiness anymore. I felt whole. I felt psychologically like a healthy person. I no longer felt that emptiness. Um, I no longer felt that sense of shame and haven't since. And you felt that into your 70s, or I'm sorry, up until 70. I did, yeah. It was one of the things that drove me, that and the uh, health issues. I think that that will be surprising and encouraging to some people listening because I think there's an idea that we have that if you do X number of therapy sessions and if you read a couple of good books that you can just unload the shame and unload the wounding and kind of be done. 
But one of the things I admire most about you is this tenacity of going to therapy until you're 70. And I've known you in your earlier 80s where you're going to do training on how to help people better. And there's this Mm -hmm. constant growth and commitment to enlarge yourself and become better. Um, so to me, that's, that's remarkable uh, that it was at 70. What is wholeness? As you speak of wholeness, say more about that idea, both personally and kind of on a, on a broader level for people who are seeking that. Well, there are a lot of ways to talk about that. My favorite way of talking about wholeness is to say, wholeness is knowing who I am and who God is. Much of our neurosis is a mistaken idea of who God is, and out of that can grow a mistaken idea of who we are. Uh, If I think I am shameful, if I think I am broken, instead of knowing that I am a saint, and instead of knowing that, well, the psalmist said, you were just a little lower than Yahweh, which is not, uh, the usual translation is you're a little lower than an angel. That's a mistranslation. It's not angel. It's God. And so we are created a little lower than God. Uh, we bear his image. We are like him. We are created like him. And the fall did not destroy that image. Something was broken, but it was not so broken that the image of God is not still there. And with the new birth, there is a potential for a wholeness that is so profound that we truly are given the position of being saints, not because we're good, but because we're given that by God. And so when I truly enter into that and experience that and know it as a conviction, uh, that forms, in a sense, one part of wholeness. And the other part of wholeness is knowing who God is. When I grew up in this performance-oriented, rigid, moralistic, religious kind of background, I saw God as somebody terrifying. I was literally terrified of God. And I became a Christian out of terror of hell. I am delighted that God did not turn out to be who I feared Him to be. But a part of a wholeness is finding out and entering into this awareness that God is loving. He loves us. He delights in us. He created us so that he can enjoy us. And he takes pleasure in our very existence. It's not about being worthy anymore. I'm worthy because God created me worthy. And so I don't have to perform anymore. Out of that comes a new way of approaching life not as somebody who's trying to be good, but when I recognize that God loves me, as the Bible says in the New Testament, we love him because he first loved us. When we let him love us, then we can begin to love ourselves. And when we begin to love ourselves, then that opens up a new way of relating to others. And so it's let God love you, begin to love yourself, and out of that fullness and that wholeness, we can begin to love others. So it's no longer performance-based. It's no longer trying to be good. It is being free to love. Something that goes 
obviously far deeper and more internal than just knowing cognitively that God is love or that God is good. Absolutely. It has to encompass your whole self. The Hebrew word for knowing is implies that you know with your whole self, knowing from your heart, so that your whole self is involved in it. And if you just have cognitive knowledge, it doesn't cut it. And I think that's where cognitive behavioral therapy breaks down, particularly with people who are stuck in their heads. They need to be able to learn to be whole and to live from their whole self as God lives from his whole self with us. So as a therapist and a trained theologian, do you think it's possible to have that journey from the cognitive and the head to the heart and that inmost knowing without exploring or knowing or working through your brokenness and your wounding? No, I don't. I think that's a part of what we call sanctification, is working that through. Now, Paul talked in uh, 1 Corinthians 13 about when he was a child, he spoke as a child, he thought as a child, uh, and then as he matured, he put away childish things. And so he had to deal with the stuff of his childhood as a part of deepening and becoming whole. The child in us is a part of our wholeness. A healthy child inside is a part of being a healthy person. If I don't have a child part of me that is alive and healthy and playful and joyful, I'm just left kind of as a talking head. There's a lack of spontaneity, lovableness about an adult who has not really integrated their child self into their current self. So that uh, I support my 10-year-old self. I am kind and compassionate to my 10-year-old self. My 10-year-old self can still think very vindictive things. <laughs> and instead of scolding my 10-year-old self, I say uh, to my 10-year-old self, hmm, I wonder where that came from. And uh, let's track that down and see where that's coming from. Curiosity instead of uh, judgment. Yes, absolutely. And then the 10-year-old part of me does not feel shamed uh, and rejected and moralized at. It feels, uh, that part of me feels a compassion that I offer from the adult part of me to the child part of me. So it's, it's an important part of wholeness. I think it was the author Anne Lamott who said, we are all the ages we've ever lived. And I think it might strike some as a strange idea to think about the fact that strong reactions we're having or strong feelings we're having are actually coming from a younger part of us. Absolutely. It's as simple as when you cut down a tree and you look at the rings, the one-year-old tree is still there. <laughs> Great analogy. And that's true with us. The one-year-old that saw the spider web is, I mean, the three-year-old or two-year-old is still there and still a part of me. It's a part of being fully expressive person, so that I'm not just confined to being 85. I am my whole self. So what would you say, you alluded a little bit to this, about how you would treat the 10-year-old David, but what would you say to the 10-year-old David today with the life that you've lived and what you've come to know about God? 
kind of what I said. Uh, I talk to David now with affection and with compassion. I just enjoy that part of myself. Are you asking um, if I what, what would I tell him about what lies before him? Yes. Huh. Well, it would be very different if my adult self could be with my ten-year-old self. Um, because he wouldn't be so lost and confused and so filled with shame and so uh, terrified of God and his father and himself and his impulses. It would be very different for him now. It reminds me of a study that was done of ghetto kids or adults who had grown up in the ghetto and they were baffled at how come most kids who grow up in the ghettos turn out to be drug dealers or into crime or wind up in prison uh, acting out in all kinds of troubling ways and some kids apparently growing up in the same environment grow up to be wise and kind and marvelously successful people uh, in every sense of that and the definition of that and some uh, researchers said, let's try to figure out why. And so they interviewed a, a bunch of them and they studied them at length. And they came to the conclusion that those who came out of the ghetto and lived successful lives had somebody who listened to them, who valued them, and did what they could to affirm their needs and where they could help them with their needs. Even if it was just an hour a month for some of these kids, that was enough. So there's this fundamental need we all have to be seen, to be heard, and to have our needs met. And that's what I would do for the 10-year-old. I would say, life is going to teach you a lot if you're ready to learn. And I will be with you, or uh, since I can't be with you, I uh, encourage you to find somebody who sees you, who knows you, who values you, and will help you get your needs met. The churches are filled with people who are faithful, church-going, Bible-reading Christians, but yet they either have no knowledge of their wounding or their brokenness, or they actively resist it. How can we play a role as counselors, pastors, artists, friends, to help people go to a place of surrendering into wholeness? Oh, Michael, I weep over people who come to me, not to them, but in inside I do, who have done their damnedest to be good and to follow the program that was sold to them by the church, which is, uh, we'll talk to you about love and we'll talk to you about grace, but bottom line is, you damned well better perform. And they do their best. And they're still brokenhearted and they're baffled. And some of them wind up in my office, and uh, there are the few that uh, say, uh, I've tried that and it's not working, and so I'm not going to try some more. 
uh, to do that. Uh, it's discredited in my mind. And so they say to themselves, and they come to me because they hope I can show them a different way or a better way. I think the bottom line is, in response to your question, what we can do is, number one, let God love us. And out of that grows the capacity, since mercy and love has been shown to us, to love ourselves. And then instead of coming on as somebody who expects the people in the churches to perform, to just love them and to hear them and to care about them and hear their story and to stay with them. And out of that comes a new model for healing. And I see that starting to happen in churches now that is really gratifying, really beautiful to me. I see it as a kind of a second reformation that started in the 50s. So you're talking about this journey of how people change by letting God love them as opposed to somehow heroically striving to love God or to follow uh, a moral code. Overall, this is kind of a a global question. Um, If someone came to you and said, I'm a Christian and I want to grow and change, how would you respond? How do people change? By being around people who can model to them a kind of wholeness, a kind of comfort in their own skin that comes from a really deep friendship with God. The Old Testament was about God as Father. The New Testament is about Jesus coming and saying, I've called you friend. It's out of friendship that that kind of wholeness comes, where we live before them our wholeness, and they're drawn to that. Some are drawn to that. Some are scared by it. But that's okay, too. It's about modeling. As we're sitting here with the microphones on, people can't see, but as you talk about being called friend by God, you tear up and your breath is taken away. Tell me about what friendship with God means to you at 85 years old. Well, I was one that was trapped in trying to do it right. And um, I was doing my very best. And... um, Over time, I realized that um, uh, it was distasteful to me to make my prayer life consist of giving God his orders every morning for what he should do today for the world or for myself or for other people. And over time, I became more and more given to silence. And in that silence, I began to listen. to God and to talk less and uh, at this point uh, I make it a practice every morning I get up I'm no hero I'm just an early riser from milking cows but I get up about 3.30 o'clock I come down here to this room and I read the Bible and uh, I take it in and then I sit in silence and in that silence I breathe the name of God and it's a friendship 
And out of that friendship, I feel a kind of a balance and a stability for the day. And if something comes to me, uh, a need that somebody has, as I'm just in that space with God, I may express my concern. Sometimes I picture that um, there's a kind of um, sacred energy that is generated that God waits for when we express our our love and concern uh, about someone and um, it frees the hand of God to be able to move in that person. I pray for my clients uh, that come up, but not in the, the usual typical kind of intercessory way. I try to tune to that person and picture myself uh, with that person and also with the Holy Spirit so that I hear from the Holy Spirit as well as my own intuition or my own therapeutic or clinical skills as I'm working with, with the person. But I am just so delighted to be able to be uh, a friend of God and to know that uh, in a sense when I wake up uh, he's waiting. That's beautiful. And uh, he he wants to enjoy me through the day that's before me. What a beautiful idea that you don't need to do anything for God, that he doesn't need or want anything from you, but that he just wants to have that friendship and to be with you, and that he enjoys you, that he enjoys us. Isn't that neat? <laughs> yeah, and that's very, as I'm looking now and as I've known you for all these years, that's very, very real to you. That emanates from you, mm. that reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You're a holy man, not because you're morally above and beyond everyone else, but you have that that holy presence of God emanating from you that I think you have to live uh, seven or eight decades to begin to experience. I sometimes joke that I had to live a long life in order to have enough time (laughs) to learn the things I needed to learn. (laughs) Uh, David, what's been the most joyful and the most difficult part of growing old to 85 years old? The difficult parts are what I've had to give up uh, physically. When I was young and athletic, I high jumped. And in fact, I became Oregon State champion in high jump. I did not know I was sitting with the Oregon State (laughs) champion of the high jump. (laughs) Well, for one year in 1948. (laughs) So I, I felt light. I floated. On the farm, I never used a gate. I jumped all the fences. It didn't bother me if they were barbed wire or whatever. I just jumped them. And um, to be um, earthbound now, uh, I miss that lightness. And um, when I was uh, in my best years as a singer, I had a big velvet voice with a big range. And uh, I was well trained. I knew how to use it well. And the joy of being able to uh, create that kind of atmosphere with people uh, in singing, I really miss that. I miss singing hymns in church. Uh, 
I don't miss worship music, <laughs> but I do miss the hymns. I don't understand worship music. It seems to be blessing a lot of people, uh, but I don't understand it. I really love the well-thought-out words of the hymns, but I miss that. More and more, I have to give more attention to my physical limits. Uh, I cannot uh, do uh, 30 hours of clients a week. I do best if I just do three hours a day. And um, I need to make sure that I don't overdo when I do the limited exercise I can do. Uh, I wish I didn't have to do that. Those are kind of the, the things that I miss. What are you looking forward to, both with your remaining years with us on Earth, and what are you looking forward to in eternity? Oh. I don't know how anybody is able to be 85 and not have a, an alive, vital, vivid uh, sense that this life is just preamble, and that... Um, as the sun sets here, it rises there. So there is no night. I mentioned Vernon Grounds, and when he was in his last weeks, uh, someone asked him uh, if he feared death. And he said, no, I'm just kind of curious about what it's going to be like. And that's how I want to approach death, is with curiosity and uh, with a hope that is so solid that I just see it really as a transition time. I frequently picture what it's going to be like to see uh, Jesus and the Father and the Holy Spirit and uh, to see uh, the biblical characters uh, that will come alive. Uh, I just think, you know, there will be no years, but if there were, um, the universe is somewhere over 13 billion years old. Uh, if there were time, I'll still still be around in 13 billion years. <laughs> <laughs> and so, this is preamble. It really is. And Paul said something about the sufferings of the present are but a moment. And uh, so that becomes more real. And I see myself not in declining years, but I see myself as in the challenges to the last stage of development because there's a lot of growth and learning to do from uh, that increasingly heaven-oriented perspective. You, you see things differently and it becomes easier to see things through the lens of the heavenlies. That is so inspiring. <laughs> Thank you so much for talking with me today. This is going to be a blessing to so many. You're welcome. You've been listening to another episode of Restoring the Soul. Learn more about how we cultivate freedom and wholeness of heart at RestoringTheSoul.com. Restoring the Soul.